G'day everyone, real fast, before the episode kicks off, I want to get your input and feedback on the show and let you in on what future episodes I'm working on. So, in the works currently right now, I'm doing a series on sexuality, as I mentioned in the last episode. So, if you come across anything interesting, like perspectives, posts on social media, Instagrammers pushing different ideas regarding sexuality, uh, anything you find interesting or challenging... Uh, something you disagree with and want to see explored more, shoot me a DM on Instagram or you can email me at ideasdigest at gmail.com and I'll reach out to them and see if I can get them on the show and explore the idea. And I'm currently recording episodes as we speak uh, about this conversion therapy bill that has passed here in Victoria, Australia. I've currently lined up a few people to share their thoughts and experiences um, with it, but... I'm missing one key perspective. I, I want to get a diversity of perspectives. One perspective generally comes easier than the other. So this is where I really need your help. Let's call it the conservative Christian perspective. I know people don't like the term conservative, but let's just call it that for now. Yet yeah, labels are restrictive. We get that. Uh, but that's what I'm looking for. This is the perspective that's often represented by the Australian Christian lobby. I'm yet to find someone to share their perspective that's coming from that worldview and before you email in yes i have asked the face of the australian christian lobby i think that the actual director and the face of the youtube videos martin isles uh, from the acl to come on the show i've actually been rejected multiple times so far in person and via instagram messages uh, maybe they're not a fan i don't know uh so if if you would like to help me out and maybe shoot him a message martin niles on instagram i think you'll find him or the australian christian lobby and say hey i know you're really opposed to this bill we'd like to know why and we think going on night is dieters would be a great way for you to share your perspective um i don't know maybe a few of you can convince them to come on the show uh make them think um, the show's a bit of a big deal and they might not want to miss out on the massive audience that they can reach through the show. I don't know. But uh, I won't hold my breath. So if you come across someone with a similar perspective, maybe someone who's writing articles, sharing things, that would be willing to share, once again, shoot me a DM or an email, artistdigest at gmail.com. That's what I'm working on so far and I would love to have you involved because let's face it, if it's just me, it's kind of a bit boring and I want to go where you would like me to go so the show is interesting for all of us and one last thing if you like the show and conversations like this and perhaps you're curious about what i conrad really think about some of these topics you can subscribe to the mailing list by clicking the link in my instagram bio and you'll you can sign up to a mailing list uh where i I send some emails to the free mailing list, but I really, if you sign up and jump the paywall that I can't say is worth jumping with your money, um, but if you if you want to, you'll get access to a series and TV show I put out once a fortnight, once a week sometimes when I get around to it, called Tell, tell You What I Really Think. I mean, <laughs> tell us what you really think, that's what it's called. I will tell you what I really think, discuss episodes and get involved and meet with you guys that way. So... That's what's going on. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and enjoy this next episode. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural 
connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we fear no idea and break down the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that I believe connects us. My name's Conrad, and if you're new to the show, welcome. You're very welcome here. But, but there is a but. I need to warn you straight up, this podcast isn't really for everybody. Most podcasts we listen to, you know, we enjoy them. We're like agreeing with them. We're like, this is a really great podcast. I agree with everything that this podcast is saying. But my goal is actually to present people with perspectives that they disagree with, to actively do that. Now, this might be a very uncomfortable space for some people to be in, so be warned. But I think if you stick with it, you'll end up enjoying hearing opposing perspectives and understanding the people behind those ideas. Um, So... If you want to turn this podcast into a practice, you start there. Number one, listen to the episode that most, well, the one you're least interested in, really, the one that offends you the most, click on it, listen to it. That's number one. Number two, on Instagram, reach out, post a question. What did I miss in the interviews and the people I'm talking to? I'm just one person, lots of different directions that could have gone in. What do you wish you found out? What, what did I miss? And that'll help me make ask better questions next time. And number three, we love hearing from you. You can email us. Uh, you can find links in Instagram or just send us DMs on Instagram. Where should we go? Who should we talk to? You tell me which rabbit holes to follow down. Now, straight into the episode now. We'll start with the clickbait because in 2020, clickbait's not going anywhere. It's often the end of the conversation, the thing people read before they share it on Facebook. Uh, They don't read the article, they just read the clickbait and go, see, I told you. Uh, If you do that with this podcast, that's okay. I'm totally cool with that. Um, But we've got to start with the clickbait. But on this show, we don't end the conversation with the clickbait. This is the beginning of the conversation. Uh, Clickbait might be misleading. Probably a lot of questions you you want to ask after hearing the clickbait. So clickbait, here it is. Capitalism. Oh, I'm already hearing some people get triggered. You you can't mention capitalism, white supremacy, and Christianity. Three hot buzzwords that, uh, well, (laughs) might get people intrigued. So let me introduce my new friend of the show, Dr. Drew Hart. Dr. Drew, uh, I just had, I don't know, it flows really nicely, as people told you that, Dr. Drew Hart. It's quite a- I hear that all the time. It's almost a performing artist grade name. They're like, man, is Dr. Drew coming? Yeah, he's coming. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to, glad to. I'm excited about this conversation. Just as as we just introduce each other, uh, tell me some top line information about yourself. Who are you? What are you doing? It's like we're just at like a cocktail party. We've just met. What's like your top line information that you that you'd go with? Yeah, um, let's see. First and foremost, well, I'm married. I got three children, three boys, um, and they keep me very busy. Nine, seven, and ju- my youngest just turned four. So. Um, so I'm tired. That's another description Busy times. of my life. Yeah. Um, I'm also uh, an assistant professor of theology at Maasai University in their biblical and religious studies department. Um, and so I do that on the side. I also do a lot of other things. So I do a lot of anti-racism work um, with churches, kind of with a theological grounding and kind of historical grounding as well. I, um, I'm a co-leader in my city for a group called Free Together, which is a relational network of followers of Jesus that are collaborating with organizers um, to just work for justice in our community around uh, some key issues that are impacting us here locally. I am an author of two different books, um, Trouble I've Seen and Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. Uh, 
and um, who will be a witness, my newest one. And then um, let me see what else. I'm a former pastor. So I used to pastor for 10 years. Um, and so that's um, a part of my background and history. And I don't know, there's so much more I could just, I, there's, a, you know, different aspects. Son of Tony and Carol. Right? That's pretty good. Um, yeah, my my parents. I'm a Philly boy. I'm a Pennsylvania and um, Philly boy, Pennsylvania through and through. Lived in Philly, Harrisburg, Philly. Then I'm back to Harrisburg again, and so um, been right here in the center of all the craziness during this election. That's right. If if you're an Australian listener of the show and you've been turning on even our news lately, you're like Philadelphia. Geez, that sounds familiar. That's right. The battleground state of uh, of the presidential election that uh, I hear has just been called, but um, for some, some others for some. maybe don't for think some it has are been in called. denial still. Quite, but. quite, de- <laughs> quite, de- quite divisive at this time, but uh, yeah. Um, so that's that's pretty good. I think you you're quite good at uh, you know getting that top line information there. Now now, Drew, what what generally happens in real life if we're honest? If I'm honest, you meet somebody, nice gentleman like yourself, and we might make some assumptions, maybe even some judgments about some people, and we might right. go, oh that guy, oh I hear I hear this about them, and right. you know we're going to be honest on this show. You know everyone kind of does it. Maybe someone's heard your intro and they're, they're making some judgments. Sure. I would like to confess some of our judgments to you. Rather yeah. than run away with them and go into our little echo chamber and go, oh, Dr. Drew, I heard he's, I heard he's uh, this. Uh, no, no. We're going to ask you about them and you get to say like, yes or no. Like that's, that's way off or, or that's a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Judging by, okay, some of the, some of the work you've been doing and where you are, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you did not vote for Donald Trump. Well, actually, no, no, I absolutely did not. <laughs> That's correct. No, there's, there's no oh, fiber in my being that, of, uh... could, that could do that. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's a, a, a hard no on that one. So that means then we only go in polar opposites in this judgment game. There's no, it's hard to be in between really. You must be, and obviously I know where you're from now, so this first half doesn't quite fit. But you must be some West Coast liberal elite. You've got a doctor in front of your name. You're a bloody elitist, Drew. Is that true? No, no, not at all. Um, number one, I'm on the East Coast, but I guess <laughs> some people would say East Coast is elitist too. But I, I grew up in the hood. I grew up poor. I grew up okay. in, um, around the way. And so, uh, in fact, I actually, well into my adulthood, never even would have imagined becoming, um, getting my PhD. And so it was probably, how old would I would have been? 28, 29 or something. Like when the idea even fathomed that I could even pursue a PhD myself. And so, yeah, it was actually a, quite a change in um, direction for my life. So that's, uh, that's wrong on the location and then wrong on the, the liberal. All right. So as we keep going, are you? we've mentioned capitalism in the clickbait. I was just looking at your website and the, the different work, work you're doing. If you just mention capitalism... Well, there's only one thing, and, and I'll just be a little bit, um, what's the word, <laughs> uh, stereotypical in my, in my assumption of a broad nation here, but uh, the general thing that comes out of a lot of Americans is if you're critiquing capitalism, Drew, you must be a communist. There's only the right, two, apparently. Right. There's the only options in America, if you ask some people. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not a communist, um, yeah. not even in the slightest. Um, nope. 
I'm not a communist. I would even, <laughs> I mean, some people would even say, you know, like you're a Marx. I'm not, I've never even read Marx. So I know that's shocking. I mean, I have an understanding of some basic ideas that he was proposing, but I've never read Marx. Um, my critique comes more from Jesus's teachings in the Gospel of Luke than it does from any kind of, you know, that kind okay. of theory and stuff like that. Um, but I definitely am against authoritarian rule. Um, though I do think that some radical change <laughs> to our economic system is needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like, yeah, you found, you found the good, the good middle ground for, for those paying attention. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, uh, fastball this one too. I haven't, I haven't done this before, but as I, as I search around and this, I feel like this, this might come from some Christian circles as I talk to some, maybe some Christian friends I might have, um, these are the dots that I see very quickly connected. Uh, maybe, maybe you've heard it, heard these dots connected before. I'm going to throw you all the dots, like fastball, fastball style, and then right. you can disentangle where, where they land. So, okay, behind you, I see like a Black Lives Matter poster there. Yeah. Um, okay, so Black Lives Matter must link to critical race theory, must link to shutting down free speech. You're against free societies, and therefore you are for a totalitarian regime. I, these, I kid you not, these are the dots that, that are often connected. I don't know. Have you experienced that? Um, maybe not those exact, but I, but I get the formula. Um, you know, people make broad, yes. really radical, you know, jumps around Black Lives Matter um, when, of course, it's just really about Black people wanting to be treated with dignity and to be safe in our communities and not to be under threat and, and experiencing police brutality. But of course, some people mm-hmm. would suggest that it's to destroy the fabric of American society and all these other things. Um, but yeah, n- none of those things mm-hmm. are true, of course. Yeah. None of them, none of them really fit. So I guess f- back on, on you, Drew, what, I guess, what assumptions do you find people make about you when they come across you or your work or what you've been doing? What are some assumptions that people make that may be either accurate or inaccurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it could come from a whole different range of pr- positions. I mean, I think some people, when they hear that I'm a Christian, they're wondering, what kind of Christian are you, right? Um, I think that that's a fair question to wonder because Christian can mean a whole lot of things these days. Um, but they're also, yeah, I think on the other side, I mean, I've, I've been called a Marxist and all these other things like that. Um, and those are usually said, though, more as to try to stigmatize in the United States, if you're called a Marxist, then that's a stigmatizing term. And so it's a reason to dismiss um, actually listening to people's actual arguments. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of the things I've heard people, you know, critical race theory, they don't even know what they're talking about. They haven't read any critical race theory. Um, so they don't know what it is, but they know it's bad, apparently. Um, and so there's that's some the of those That's the new buzzword. I yeah, it's the new <clears> buzzword, right. you that's know. Right. Right. You know, so obviously we don't want to think critically about racism. We would be uncritical about it, I guess. You know, unexamined racism is the answer, I guess, to all our problems. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, okay. That's a, that's a good uh, talking point for anyone that come, comes across that, 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 uh, that assumption. Un- uncritical thinking about racism. Talk to me about your journey, I suppose, into the work that you're doing now? I mean, did you grow up Christian in a, in a Christian home? Um, you mentioned that you never thought you'd, you'd get into doing a PhD. Yeah. Talk to me about like, I guess where you come from and, and how you ended up where you are. 
Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in um, Norristown, Pennsylvania at first, um, which is the Philly area, and um, grew up in black and Latino community, um, poor and working class community. Uh, I did grow up in a black church, um, and that was very significant for me in my formation, deep friendships there, connections. In fact, that was the space that in the midst of a racist society, that was a space where we as young people were taught to you know, love our black skin and to love ourselves and to be told that we were, you know, that who we were was good. You know, it wasn't a problem. Um, and we were affirmed in our giftings and I've developed leadership in that space. And so that was really a, a really beautiful space in the midst of everything else that um, was going on even um, back then, 80s and 90s. Um, I ended up, I mean, I could, I'll skip around a little bit, but I went to college um in 2000 to 2004 as a biblical studies major. So I was, I mean, at that point, I, a little before in high school, I kind of hit this turn where, um, you know, my faith really became really, really significant. And so decided I want to explore this further and I wanted to um, study. And so I went with biblical studies at Messiah University. And um, yeah, there began to even stronger connect the dots between faith and justice. <clears throat> Um, that was really, and just critically thinking about faith, right? There's some ways in which faith goes unexamined and people don't wrestle with it. Um, um, that particular institution just gave space for me to kind of engage um, in my classes critically around my faith. And then um, after that, I was a youth pastor. I was working in the city with, um, uh, in a poor black and brown community, just working with young people, working for after school program in the neighborhood. And so um, just, you know, more action praxis, right, with young folks walking alongside folks in their hardships. And then after that, went back to Philly, did more schooling, a little more pastoring, um, and there took the turn towards justice, uh, I mean, towards the PhD work in theology and ethics um, in a minor area in historical theology. And I just had a lot of questions around just the history of Christianity, its entanglements with white supremacy, um, the examples, the counterexamples to that that have uh, arisen and just the implications that they have for the work of liberation and justice. And so all those things as a follower of Jesus, I was able to just kind of navigate and kind of study and explore these things deeper. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of my journey. And a lot of that then simultaneously, just a lot of justice work, especially here in Harrisburg, um, a lot of work collaborating with uh, organizers in my city around issues like immigration and um, public education funding and just different important issues that are impacting our neighborhoods. And so, yeah, I I guess I'm a kind of person that just I connect um, thinking and action, right? Um, praxis is really important. Yeah, I, I think that's what I was going to kind of highlight. What I'm hearing is a lot of your... Christian worldview seems very connected with practical on the ground, I guess, ministry or what led you into wanting to study and understand like race and um, siding with the oppressed and Christianity? What kind of, why did you yeah. go choose to go in the direction of studying and pastoring and Bible college? Well, two different things. So I'd say the the biblical studies path initially was just me becoming passionate about my faith, right? Because of my upbringing. Um, but then taking the other turn was more 
me seeing how it seemed like what I was experiencing was so many white Christians in the United States seemed to had like deep problems with race, like unexamined racism in the life of the church in white American churches. And I was trying to figure out like what in the world, why is it that it seems worse in some of these churches than outside of the church? Something seems off in my experience. And so I wanted to dig deeper, understand the history behind that. How did we get to where we are? What were some of the thoughts? How did Christian thought develop in such a way that it became susceptible to uh, adapting to white supremacy and things like that? And so that those were some of my questions that I wanted to kind of figure out and I needed to interrogate deep, deeper. Is there like an experience that you had growing up it, coming across that idea of in the Christian church, in the white Christian church, is there an experience that you came that you had that made you click and go, hang on, white Christianity seems to be different to the Christianity I grew up in, and it seems to have a problem around like race and um, marginalizing yeah. already marginalized communities. Yeah, I mean, the, the first initial experience was me just going off to college because. I went there kind of naive thinking like, oh, you know, these are all Christians here in this space together. Most of the folks, I mean, a lot of folks were not there as like biblical studies major. Most of the folks there, it was a Christian college, but it was like, you know, engineering and nursing, just like everybody else, that kind of stuff. Um, and I thought, you know, great, share my faith, you know, shared faith with people. So they'll ha- there'll be this connection that we'll have. And I found out I was very naive, right? Um, I was seeing a lot of subtle racism and stereotyping going on. Um, I would experience, I'd hear like white students calling many black students, like using terms like thug, right? To refer to black students, um, which is a racially coded word. It's not it's not like the same as calling someone the N-word anymore, but it's still a racially coded word. Mm-hmm. And these were issues that I just hadn't seen or experienced so frequently outside of the church and public school and things like that. So what was going on? And it was just, uh, some of it was little stuff, but it was just constant. It was just all the time. And so on one hand, I was studying about my faith and it was supposed to be justice oriented in this Jesus that cares about the least last and loss of society and cares about justice and those on the margins and all that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, I'm experiencing something else among so many of my peers. And so that kind of um, cognitive dissonance, I guess you could say, is what was the push um, that led me towards wanting to go deeper and to wrestle more. Um, and, And so race and faith from that point forward after encountering that um, became something that I was very intentional about um, both challenging and learning more about. I guess after spending so much time studying this very deeply to get the doctor and doing your PhD and pastoring, I guess over to you, where do you think as you, as you ask that question, like where does this difference between these two Christianities come from? What is the difference? What's ingrained within like white Christianity that makes it, I suppose, resistant to critique on uh, grounds of racism or different perspectives? Because it it is like, as I kind of was looking at your work and then looking at some of the other podcast episodes you've done, in the last month or two, I've, I've just seen, like we were joking before, the buzzword of critical race theory just pop up 
within yeah. Christian circles like a lot. And I don't know whether that's because Donald Trump just started buzzing it or what it was, but it was within all of a sudden um, critical race theory has popped up and there's lots of, I suppose, Christian podcasts and stuff now really like almost fixating on on this angle. And it seems to be presenting some kind of tension. It's It almost yeah. uh, comes to the same level as like gay marriage or like LGBTQ issues within the church. It kind of pops up as like an anomaly that people are and and the, what I've perceived from looking at what's out there, there's a there's a resistance to it. There's a pushback against it, being like, oh well, it's Marxist or it Black Lives Matter come from this movement. And I suppose thinking of the clickbait, like and your critique, capitalism, white supremacy, Christianity, like where where I guess where do you want to start or or take this as far as identifying what you've what you've learned over a um quite a quite a significant study into the difference between the different Christianities. Yeah. I mean, we could really go really far back. I mean, some of my history was just learning and thinking about church history, 2000 years of history and thinking about like, uh, I'll give shorthand, right? This is the cliff notes version, but you know, the, the church yeah, yeah. Um, began in, it wasn't in the West, right? It wasn't in Europe. Some people, I think sometimes people forget that, um, that it's not a Western religion. Um, it was, you know, in fact, Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation, right? I mean, we just got to remember that in the Afro-Asiatic region, like he's, um, in fact, the birth stories, he runs, he, he flees into um, Egypt, into Africa to hide out from Herod's killing of baby boys at that time. Like that's the region and that's where Judaism and everything takes its roots. And so um, Christianity is initially an Eastern religion. And for the first 300 years, it doesn't have political power. Um, as it grows, many of its early theologians are African. You got folks like Tertullian and Cyprian and Augustine and Athanasius and Origen. I mean, huge figures in the Christian tradition in terms of theology that were African theologians. Um, and, and so for the first 300 years, it's on the margins. And then Constantine comes to power in 312 AD. Um, he ends all Christian persecution. He begins to advantage the church, right? And so there's this history of, um, as, as that happens, the church goes from the margins to the center, from the center to like getting in bed with power over time. It doesn't all happen immediately. Sometimes put too much is put on Constantine, but that the, that big shift begins to happen under that reign. Bishops take the place of the Roman Senate. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. A um, hundred years after Constantine, like Theodosius, Christianity's made the official religion of the land, right? And so where they were at time persecuted, um, now they persecute others. Um, and over centuries then, all the way up to like 1000 AD, you have this just kind of growing edifice and institution of what people call Christendom. Um, the Christian supremacy coercively enforced over society, right? That happens. And as that happens, what, what eventually is happening is also that Western Christianity is growing and eventually becomes the more dominant group. It becomes the larger form of Christianity as well. And, and, and in their growing, they eventually forget that they are, are Gentiles, that is to say they were engrafted into somebody else's story, right? Um, that, that they see themselves as having a copyright on Christianity, a copyright on the Bible, a copyright on Jesus, uh, all the whole thing. If you want to become Christian, you need to become like us, right? That, that begins to happen. Um, plus lots of power. You think about the Crusades and all that stuff. And during that time, there's an official teaching called Terra Nullius. And Terra Nullius basically just meant 
empty land. And basically what it was, was during the Crusades, they were given permission to go and plunder empty lands that weren't actually empty. They just weren't inhabited by other Christians, right? So anything non-Christian was deemed empty land, which is just violence and coercion and conquest. Um, and so that's happening um, during the Crusades, 1000 AD in. Um, of course, there are other versions and smaller forms, but that's this is the large expression of the church at that moment. Go jump forward a few more centuries. Um, in the 15th century, Portugal begins to enslave Africans from North Africa. And, and then another teaching, another people bull is created that basically gives even more permission, kind of that Terranellius idea, but goes even further. You can reduce people to perpetual slavery and plunder. And, you know, it was just horrific violence that is, it, the church is doing the theological lifting for the conquest work that's going on. Um, and so the church, it's more, it's missing its message. Like over time, like what had started out as like, a message centered in the life and teachings of Jesus um, now has made Jesus into a mascot for the status quo. And it's kind of diluted his actual message and domesticated and ignored and skirted around the teachings of Jesus. Um, and now it's just the name of Jesus can, and it can be justified to engage in all kinds of stuff. And, um, and, but it also gives people a sense of, you know, sense in which, you know, divine sanction, right. To the work that they're doing, they're doing God's work. Um, and so out of that context of conquest, other European states and nations get involved. And, you know, we have the history of colonialism and slavery globally um, that we all know. And over and over and over again, Western Christianity, and certainly you can see it very clearly in American, white American Christianity, um, they kept making adaptions and mutations to Christian theology and ethics to uh, further promote slavery. Like, for example, Black people, um, you know, initially actually they didn't even want to convert black people because um, the initial English doctrine teaching was that if you were, you couldn't enslave another Christian. So there was this concern around, is this okay? They actually had to send some Anglican missionaries down to actually say, no, it's okay. This is compatible, right? Uh, to enslave uh, Christians is okay. And so they make an adaption to that. Uh, and then there's this um, way of, they begin to like, uh, kind of have a dualistic frame for thinking about black people. And so either seen as bodiless souls or soulless bodies, that is to say bodiless souls is um, they're just a soul. It doesn't matter what happens to their body because it'll go off to heaven. Right. Or soulless bodies. It doesn't matter. Um, you don't have to worry about this. just their body. They're just bodies and nothing else, nothing more than that. And so it doesn't matter how you treat them. either way, either, either formula um, allows dehumanizing. Right. Um, and, and the bigger thing I think that we have to acknowledge historically in terms of what I would call a mangled and diseased Christianity that uh, occurred in the West in particular, and certainly in the United States, is that white supremacy, like, it's not, some people would like to think of it as like a social problem. It's a social problem. But it was literally like, if you read text from like the 1700s, for example, and you see them use the word white or Christian, they will use the word synonymously. It means the same thing to them, right? Um, a white person is a Christian as far as they're concerned. And a Christian is a white, like those things were conflated with one another. And 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 whiteness um, was 
constructed solely for the purpose of othering and, and, and creating a hierarchy over non-white people and especially African people. That's why white and black are opposites, right? They work in that function as a hierarchical uh, kind of framework. And so you can see this developing. And so white supremacy isn't just a sociological problem. It's a theological, a diseased theological imagination that's actually outplaying. Um, and so some of my work was to see that that the church didn't merely, and I say the church broadly in the most expansive sense, because there were many, there was resistance to it as well. But but the church um, that engaged in this kind of work, it didn't merely just fall into racism with society. If anything, it did the opposite. It it pushed white supremacy into society. Like it was the it birthed Christian supremacy birthed white supremacy into the world. Right. That's that's what we have to grapple with. And I think that now in our present day, people mostly think, oh, yeah, slavery, that was wrong. We shouldn't have done that. But they don't interrogate the theological mutations and assumptions that have gone on over time that have allowed that, that also then create new problems because they're not getting to the root of it, right? So that's why I think now that people are suspicious of justice, which is really strange for a Christian tradition, if you read the teachings of Jesus, um, th- that people are suspicious of justice, suspicious of anybody who's challenging oppression, right? These are the bad things to do. Um, how do you get there from Jesus? It's, it's a really strange thing. I think sometimes folks outside of the church, is my impression, sometimes understand Jesus better than folks inside the church. Yeah, so I guess the, the picture that you're, you're painting there is is probably a hard one for a lot of Christians to grapple with. Like you, you painted this history that perhaps is very unfamiliar to modern American Protestantism or Australian Protestantism or Protestantism in the West, where it, it starts not in the West and is a history of being co-opted. And it sounds like you're describing it as not just almost like being on the periphery of a cultural problem of like enslavement and supremacy of culture and all these things it's almost you're saying it's like christianity historically has been a central tool for oppressing other people for like like you were yeah it was interesting when you said christianity was synonymous with whiteness so at some point when you're saying when you're looking at the history books and it's talking about christianity what it sounds like you're doing is going, well, Christianity then meant white supremacy, Christian supremacy, like cultural supremacy of anyone who was kind of different. And it, and so you, what you're doing is then look, pulling that, looking at that historical Christian context. And, and now when you're looking at uh, American Protestantism today, you can, rather than looking at things like um, like racism and going, oh, well, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a bit of an anomaly. We can, we can address it with some, you know, um, with, you know, including more black people in the church or something like that. You're taking this far deeper saying there's some, some theological mutations that what might still be present within the church today because of its inherent complicity with oppressive forms of oppressive regimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's clear. I mean, you can see it all the way through the history books, the ways, the adaptions, the mutations, the mangling of the tradition um, and the using of Jesus. I mean, literally, I mean, over and over again, 
the Bible is used to bolster slavery and people begin to make arguments, Christian arguments for racial segregation and Jim Crow. And I mean, it's horrifying. I mean, imagine how in the 20th century you can have folks uh, lynch somebody on Saturday nights and then sing the old rugged cross on Sunday morning and not see any contradiction between those two practices, right? Um, something has gone terribly wrong in mainstream Christianity um, that allowed that. Now, again, there are, and I would say the black church is one of them, um, traditions that were on the underside and that were resisting and that were reinterpreting and, and actually finding something quite liberative in the midst of this. Um, but I think that uh, something wholesale, something huge and enormous has gone on that shifted that so much of Christianity that that goes, that self-professes as Christianity um, looks nothing like Jesus, nor the even the anything like in familiarity with the church of the first couple centuries. Is there a theology as we look at that history and then look at the present current Christian climate, is there... A theological difference that you see between the black church and the white church in America, and is there is there any mm, sort of theology that the white church currently might hold that either limits the ability to side with the oppressor, as is kind of being pointed out, or, or limits the ability to do anything about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I would say in the black church, and I would say the black church is also diverse, right? So we're using this one label to describe uh, a whole diversity of Christian traditions and congregations as well. But I'd say the best of it, and certainly the historical grounding for it, um, you see what we could all I call a black prophetic tradition. And prophetic, not in the sense of like some people hear prophet and think, you know, telling the future and all that stuff, but more the model of the prophets in the Bible who speak up and unveil the injustices that are going on in their society, right? And so there's that tradition, you think about Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois, Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells and um, all the way up to, you know, um, Dr. King and, you know, Ella Baker and so forth. I mean, there's this great tradition all the way up to the present. We got Reverend William Barber now doing some awesome work. <coughs> and and so that, I think, certainly, and then as well as just the Black liberation theology tradition that out of slavery um, black people began to, which got ignored under most mainstream white Christian traditions, um, the, the importance of the Exodus in the biblical narrative, um, which is central. If you understand Judaism, you understand that this is a central, pivotal moment in the Old Testament stories that God reveals God's self as a liberator of, of enslaved and oppressed people out of Egypt and and out of, you know, and so... So that storyline, black people heard this, even those who couldn't even read, just hearing it audibly are understanding the significance of it. And so it shows up all of a sudden in the spirituals that they're singing under slavery. Um, they're singing, you know, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, um, because they understand the, the power, the significance of a God that sides with the enslaved and, and is for justice. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the things, though, I think on the, the other side of your question was, like, what is it that allows in the present day for some of these issues in the mainstream white church? And I think some of it is um, like how people understand and, and engage Jesus, I think, is significant. Um, I have a colleague. He's a friend of mine, Richard Crane. He says um, he says many white Christians, they treat Jesus like um, the crazy uncle at the you know family dinner gathering. 
Um, you know, so like you have a friend over and you have like that one family member that, you know, just says off the wall, crazy stuff. And like, no one takes him seriously. So you're like, oh, that's just uncle so-and-so. Nobody really cares, you know, and that's how we treat Jesus. Oh, that's just Jesus talking. He doesn't actually mean that we care for the poor, right? He might talk about it a lot, but he doesn't really mean that. And so we kind of just dismiss him. And so there's all these ways that people skirt and avoid the teachings and life of Jesus and the significance of it. Um, and so I often see that many people who claim Jesus have this kind of spiritual abstract idea of Jesus that has very little to do with the Jesus found in the Bible in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we, they do like a cradle to the cross jump. They love baby Jesus and they love talking about Jesus dying for them. Um, but this stuff in between is more like a buffet line. You just pick and choose what you want and you can discard and not have the other stuff. And so I think that there's a way in which we see a lot of that going on. And so um, there's a need for Christians to actually take Jesus seriously. I mean, it sounds silly and oversimplistic, um, but literally in the church, people don't actually take Jesus seriously. And I think that um, so much of our ethics is supposed to be formed by the life and teachings of Jesus. And so when that, so even though people say Jesus is the center, what they just mean is this projection of Jesus Um um, and the emotionalism that they have with the idea of Jesus, but it has nothing to do with the actual person of Jesus that that is written about in the in the Bible. And so um, that, I think, is the most fundamental. I think there's other stuff as well. Um, I do think that there's a tendency to try to spiritualize everything. And so, you know, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, woe to you who are rich. And then, oh, they, he doesn't really mean that. And so, you know, let's just spiritualize. And so they don't want to have any kind of economic critique. So it's just a it's just the poor in spirit, and that's all he means. Or, or Jesus doesn't actually care about us giving to the poor. It's just a matter of the heart, right? That's what, at least I don't know if that happens in, in your context, but but in the U.S., you'll just hear, it's just a matter of the heart. Um, you just change your heart. He doesn't actually care about how we live and respond. We just got to change our heart. Um, and so then they claim they've done a heart change, and then they live the same way anyway. So anyway, I think these are some of the moves that are familiar in white American Christianity um, that allow people to feel like they're good with God and also live exactly opposite to all the things that Jesus invites us to live into. A phrase I'm, I'm thinking about that you just said is like the spiritual abstract. And, and that, that's got me thinking. It, do you think that this central focus, like I think of my Christian upbringing, you know, going to like Hillsong popular as cool skinny jeans Christianity and then more conservative Christianity I, I grew up in. Spiritual abstract is a word that sticks out to me because if, if I'm thinking of kind of what I was taught, the central focus was on Jesus dying for your sins and salvation. And then when you're talking about everything in between is kind of a bit optional. It's like, yeah, we do want to love people and we say we, we care for the poor and all of these things. But I just, as I contrast your upbringing and experience with Christianity, like out on the streets, helping people, like doing doing social work and things like that. I think of mine, which is like, oh, like playing some music, wearing skinny jeans, hanging out with friends. Um, it, like spiritual abstract, just I keep coming kind of back to that. Do you think that this central focus on this dying for sins and this grace message, I suppose, when, when they say, oh, um, you know, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is accept this doctrinal intellectual idea that Jesus died right. on the cross for your sins. 
Right. Nothing else matters. You're accepted who you are. And there's definitely like a central truth to that. Like you're okay. And, and, and as you are, you, you're valuable, all of those things. But do you think maybe an unintended consequence of that soul central focus on that spiritual abstraction then makes it difficult for people operating within that model to go, oh, that means I probably need to get out and stand for the oppressed. Who are the oppressed? Do you think that, there's a like what do you think limits that ability to see this middle part you're talking about that has become optional within mainline protestantism yeah i mean i think when people are coming to jesus they're coming self-interested right and they would like to believe that jesus gives the divine stamp of approval on their lives as they are and they would like to think, oh, our people, we're good people and we're nice people and that's good enough. And, and you know, we give our we give a little charity every now and then and things like that. Um, but even like so you mentioned like the dying on the cross for our sins. But even that separated from the, the actual Jesus story doesn't get to the full significance of Jesus's crucifixion because Jesus in the actual story goes, he, he sets his his eyes towards Jerusalem goes into Jerusalem. Jerusalem's like the center. Like he, he's a little country boy. Jesus is a country Galilean. He's not from the city, um, but the city is where the temple is. It's where um, it's concentrated, not just religious power, but political power, cultural power, economic power, and the Sanhedrin are in cahoots with the Roman Empire, right? I mean, this is, this is where power is concentrated. And he goes on the most pivotal ho- holiday, Passover, and he goes into the temple and flips tables and makes the ec- a devastating economic critique. Um, you den of robbers, right? In fact, he will later say um, that they they do all these fancy prayers and they, um, what's the phrase he uses? They devour widows' homes, right? That's the phrase he uses. It's just really devastating some of the critiques he makes. And then you go on and Matthew 23, I mean, just vicious critiques. You you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, right? That's Jesus. Um, basically, he's saying, like, you will tithe, t- you'll go, you know, um, uh, windowsill plants, right? You're tithing that, but you're missing the big stuff, justice and mercy. Um, and so if we miss Jesus's crucifixion separated from his clash with the establishment, um, and the inevitable consequences that come from that kind of faithful witness, then in some ways you miss something really significant about Jesus dying <laughs> um, and his death, right? That he's, his death is a state-sanctioned execution that was reserved for uh, slaves and rebels. Like those, that's what the empire, that's who gets, in, that's who gets crucified. Um, and so in that crucifixion, if, if, if someone's a Christian, then, then, then you've got to believe that God then identifies with those who are most marginal and vulnerable in society, um, the crucified of the world, so to speak, um, which is a really powerful understanding of the story when you actually track the story and not just make it an abstraction, right? Um, but, but then once you pull it out of its context and just say, Jesus died for his sin, died for our sins, um, then it has no meaning when we say, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, 
right? It's just, what does that even mean? That's why I joke today. I say Christians don't even know what that means anymore. So they just make up things. So like someone gave me a funny look because I'm a Christian, you know, that's my cross to bear, you know, or I, I, um, I didn't get the parking spot in the, in, you know, at the mall today. So that's my cross to bear today. Or, you know, my winter blanket broke down, you know, and, you know, but that's my cross to bear for Jesus. You know, it's like, you know, all the first world problems they can think of. Um, it has nothing to do with state-sanctioned execution because of the faithfulness um, of, 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 of pursuing God's love and justice in the world. And so I think that we've got to get rooted back into the story of it. Not to say that Jesus didn't die for people's sins, um, but it's not sins in the abstract also. Um, Jesus is concerned about a disordered world that especially harms the least, last, and loss of the world. That's his teachings consistently, right? The poor, the vulnerable, the Samaritans, the stigmatized in his society. Um, so it's not just sins in the abstract. That's what we like to do. Then we can just, again, go back to examining our heart. Um, and I'm not saying like, sure, God wants us to work on all of us, right? But there's some particular things that he was deeply invested in that we seem to ignore. Um, and we prefer to then just choose our own sins that we would like to focus on rather than these central things that have been identified and pointed out for us. Some of the themes I'm, I'm hearing you directly critique there seems to be the individualism inherent within Christianity as we see it today being like, it is my sins that I will be forgiven for. We, we take this, when you're talking about uh, the, the Jesus' critique of a system, of an economic system of empire dying on the cross as an enemy of the state, that's, that's almost a, a symbol against like this, this system. But it sounds like you're critiquing the interpretation that comes from a very individual framework, like it's just me and not really a community. And then when you're talking of Jesus's critique, I I hear this phrase a lot um, from many Christians and they might say like Jesus wasn't political. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like what you're saying was the harshest criticism. Like when people were like, Jesus was turning over the tables. We kind of forget that and go, nah, but he didn't get angry because he was sinless or whatever. We're, we're, we're focused on his individual I suppose, behavior and, and people struggle to go, Oh, like, you know, he's flipping over tables of merchants and stuff. But in the context, when you're painting it there, what you're saying is the harshest critique Jesus ever gave to the point of anger and flipping tables was toward the system of, I guess, capital or wealth that created oppression that exploited the widows and all of these things. Um, and, and these are the ideas of, of money at all cost and individualism. Would you say, like, is that is that kind of your critique then? A critique of both individualism and capitalism? It's that plus more. But yeah, I mean, those things certainly. I mean, I think that American Christianity is hyper-individualistic when that's just not the way. I mean, you read the New Testament. A lot of times when it says you it's actually in the Greek plural, y'all. That's how we would say it in, in, in the U.S., right? Um, and so it's a you plural. And But we hear it, oh, you're speaking to me, you know, me and God, just us. No, it's to a community, right? It's communal. It's always communal. Um, the Israelites, when they understood the sins, like they were, after they come out of exile, out of Babylon, they have this sense in which they're still 
in exile spiritually because of the collective sins and they're waiting for God to redeem Israel. You hear that all throughout the New Testament, but it's not an individual term. It's a collective term, right? Uh, the idea of God covering their sins, it was a communal idea, not just, just for one individual person, but also communal as well. Certainly individual participates in that, but it's not just about one individual person. Um, salvation, deliverance, all these things are communal, not just individual. And so I think that um, some of what Western Christianity done is by making it so hyper-individualistic, um, it misses the broader systemic and social implications for our society and for the ways that we've got to um, think about our communal response, right? Um, that's why, I mean, in America, I mean, people get very upset. We, I didn't own slaves, uh, um, but they have no sense of intergenerational faithfulness either, right? Um, that's just not a, that we, we're, it's so foreign. The Bible's ways are so foreign to, to so many Westerners, right? That they don't know how to enter into any of these kind of conversations. And I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. But then, yeah, the capitalism, I think, is certainly one of the many ways in which that have gotten embedded into Christianity. So certainly in the U.S., people think that capitalism is God's chosen economic system. And they, they, I think they imagine that it's somewhere in the Bible, right? Um, uh, and so it's just interesting. And so anything, even Jesus, you know, the things that Jesus says can't even be received because they're more committed to capitalism than they are to Jesus. No one would actually say that, but that's just the reality is that, you know, we, we reject, people reject Jesus's life and teachings because it doesn't conform to their capitalist understandings. And that is unregulated capitalism, right? In the U.S. at least. Um, um, because we are the meanest as it relates to caring for poor people and vulnerable people, providing health care, things like that. Ask a Christian, a white Christian here in the U.S., and you'll get the meanest response in terms of caring for the, the most vulnerable in our society. Anybody else, you're more likely to get a more positive response. It's really fascinating. I mean, what do you make of this idea then? It, sound, it sounds like you're saying something very similar. I've heard, I can't remember who says it, maybe Peter Rollins, who we had on the show before, or, or somebody else that says like, Christianity can only truly exist on the margins. As soon as it becomes co-opted by the dominant uh, empire, it ceases to be the Christianity that Jesus uh, wants that Jesus existed within because Jesus is an oppressed Jew under the boot of the Roman empire. Do you think that it's almost either impossible or difficult for someone who is coming from a dominant cultural narrative, one dominated by capital, like recruiting capital or wealth, your value is tied up very intrinsically with your capital value. How much money you have is almost directly proportional to how much value as a person you are, um, or the things, the benefits and privileges you get in society, as well as individualism. Like it's just me, like like you said, like oh, I didn't own slaves. Why should I be punished? The, the same thing will be in Australia. Like why should like I didn't. Um, I wasn't part of the stolen generation for um, Indigenous people here. Why, like, why should I kind of suffer for? You hear that that against affirmative action and all those ty- types of things. Are yeah. you? A would would you say that these factors of hyper individualism and not experiencing, not having a lived experience of being on the outside? Do you think that limits the ability of someone? so like me, to truly fully understand this community Christianity, this oppressed Jesus, 
because, you know, I've never really experienced that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about what Jesus says himself, right? He says, after making a series of devastating economic critiques, then he goes on and he says, you know, it's impossible for, you know, the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom of God, right? So, and then of course he, to couch it at the end, then he says, but all things are possible with God. Uh, but but it seems that the their natural orientation and disposition um, prevents people from understanding what God is doing. Paul says something similar, right? First Corinthians 1, he says, well, he's teaching on the Christ crucified and the meaning of it. He says that God is expressed, God's power and wisdom is expressed in the crucified Christ. And then he goes on and says, God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. God has chosen the things that are considered nothing consider to shame those that are considered something, right? Um, and so there is explicitly in a whole variety of ways throughout the Bible, there's teaching that that God's activity is especially found among those who are oppressed and vulnerable in our society today. Um, and yet um, those in power have often not only oppressed, not only oppressed those who are vulnerable, but then claim to, to believe that they were in the superior position to interpret and understand what, what God is up to in the world, despite everything that the Bible is teaching that they say they're centering their, their lives on. And so there's this weird, again, um, cognitive dissonance between you know what they're professing and what they're seeing in scripture. Um, but I do think that that there's a, you know, the people talk about like uh, sociology, sociology of knowledge talks about like, you know, the taken for granted frameworks that we operate out of, that some of those taken for granted assumptions that people are living out of um, will limit people from seeing and understanding. Um, it doesn't make it impossible, but it's going to make it harder for them. And they're actually going to need, I mean, some of what I do in my first book is make this argument that that people need to enter into counterintuitive solidarity, right? That is to say, don't trust their own gut. Um, and that, that their pathway is actually trusting the insights of those who are actually oppressed and vulnerable will actually help them to move in a better posture that can actually join in with, again, what we see God doing throughout the Bible. As you say, trusting the insights of the oppressed and the vulnerable, I'm thinking in a capitalist or a hyper-capitalist society, that almost you're almost saying you need to you need to trust the poor, but but that goes directly against the narrative of a capital society that says the money that you have you deserve because you worked right. hard for it and it's yours. Right. And right. if you are poor, the subtext more in America than Australia, but you know still in Australia, if you're poor, you deserve it, and you should have worked a little bit harder. Like when you walk past a homeless person. Bad choices, buddy. Sorry, like shouldn't have chosen drugs. I chose to be born to my parents. So, you know, right. like I didn't right. choose that. That almost, it's almost as if what, when you're talking about um, uh, Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, that's the way into the kingdom. We need, like, we can deconstruct, like someone said in the comments, and l learn from the people who are marginalized, oppressed, poor, the outsider that can be the way to understanding Jesus in this way. But that seems almost the polar opposite of a capital narrative that says, but if you're wealthy, you deserve it. Because in that capital narrative, there's nothing I can learn from the poor, mate, because they're poor. They got no money. I'm going to learn from the richest guy I can because I want right. more money. It, like, do you see that direct right. tension of of Christ of like Christianity and empire almost in that frame, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're they're running against each other. I mean, so it's interesting that in the Bible itself, there is some tension in the in the scripture itself because it, if you read in the early part of the Bible, the Deuteronomic kind of tradition of scriptures. Initially, there's this sense in which, oh, you obey God, you'll be blessed with material goods and you disobey and you'll, you know, you'll be cursed. And it's really simplistic. And then everything after that just messes that up. Right. Um, It challenges it. It wrestles with it. And by the time you get to Jesus, he's saying the exact opposite. Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. Blessed are those who hunger now. Woe to you who are filled now. Right. I mean, it's just flips it. In fact, Luke's gospel in particular just so much focus on the social conditions, and that's where God's reign has broken into the world. Um, and so it's really fascinating um, what Jesus does. But you're right. I think that when Christians um, are clinging to, or people in general are clinging to capitalism, they are finding themselves in direct contradiction to um, what the reign of God is all about, because capitalism is inviting you to be competitive against one another rather than collaborating with others, right? It's pursuing profits while while the reign of God is about, you know, pursuing people, right? And it's just different kind of priorities, um, expansion, limitless expansion, all these things that these kind of priorities, I mean, we've seen how they played out. I mean, nobody in the world knows this better than black people, what capitalism can do, because that's what slavery was, right? It was literally um, trying to maximize profits Mm. by exploiting and enslaving our people. And what happens in the United States, especially if you look at it, in the later years, actually, it's the most fascinating. Um, um, as the Industrial Revolution is taking off and a global market is really blowing up and cotton is in demand from 1800 to 1860, um, the South, year after year, has an increase in production of cotton every single year. In fact, they say that the individual enslaved people um, increased their production 2% every year because they were being tortured harder they were being pushed with cruel and more wicked, you know, inventions to force people to come up with producing more and more cotton every year um, to keep up with the demands that the cotton gin could keep up with, to keep up with the demands that the North in the Industrial Revolution was taking place, to keep up with the demands of cotton all around the world, right? And so this is capitalism. That's it at its finest. And and in the U.S. Year after year, I mean, the South kept wanting to expand to new states, right? To have more and more slave states um, because it was never satisfied. I mean, that's capitalism. That's it at its finest, unregulated, right? Without any protection. That's that's the worst. That's what it can offer mm. you. And I think that we we fail to recognize how devastating it can be, how destructive it can be, because its goals are not people. Its goals are not the thriving of all people. Its goals are not... Um, the flourishing of all people. It's never been about that. Um, it inevitably uh, creates the haves and the have-nots, which is exactly what um, Jesus's teachings on God's kingdom are trying to fight against. So when you're critiquing capital capitalism there, you've got a definition of capitalism that is, you know, a distribution of resources according to the market. Let the market decide what should be produced and when. And you're like, yeah, okay, that's that's a way of uh, centralized distribution of resources isn't that uh, useful or, or helpful but there's this other side of almost unfettered capitalism without regulation without kind of control without kind of boundaries which is essentially infinite growth on finite resources and what you're describing with the example of of slaves in america the finite resources are the slaves themselves 
and capital is wringing every cent it can out of them, out of the bodies of other people. And now we almost see that same mechanism taking place with the environment. We don't, we don't have the environment can't necessarily speak for itself. So we're just wringing everything we can out of the environment because it capitalism at its heart demands growth like you know at its best maybe it's a distribution of resources letting the market kind of put where it needs to but then at its worst it's that it's that infinite growth on finite resources so then people would say to you obviously but the christianity you're talking about and the critique of capitalism you're talking about communism then what do you say to someone who reads it that way and says that to you yeah, I mean, I, I would say um, they have not engaged in dialogue with many people if the, all they can think is there's unregulated capitalism or communism, though that is the way it gets framed, certainly in the United States. Um, I think you can look at someone like Dr. King, right, Martin Luther King. He was clearly a democratic socialist. He didn't always use that term, uh, but he was clearly a democratic socialist. Um he believed that the society as a whole had a responsibility to take care of its members and to be responsible um, and still wanted a democratic society. And those both of those things can coexist, though anytime people use the word socialism, certainly the United States, then all of a sudden they start talking about communism. But there are so many other ways to engage. And yeah, and so I think that um, our lack of imagination or willful ignorance around these topics, because sometimes I think it's it's choosing to almost like a little kid, you know, put your fingers in the air. No, 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 you don't really want to hear these other alternatives that exist because you're so committed to this one path. And I think that that's certainly what I see quite a bit. Many Christians would, would hear what you're saying as you're talking about, like, we need to elevate social justice. We need to think of the community. We need to have a community approach to these concepts like sin and um, create change that way. And and as you critique this individual salvation model that that is dominant, people people would say, but now that's works-based. You're saying it's all works-based and now I have to do, like, now I'm not saved unless I'm doing something. What's your, what do you say to that? I would say that's right. Uh, because salvation is about our whole way of life. It's not just an intellectual idea. Um, I think that one of the dangerous things that happened in our fights with the, the Protestant Catholic fight is that we lost sight of Jesus's teachings in the midst of it. And so it was either, you know, like, yeah, you're saved through, like, I, I don't think we're saved through indulgences and things like that. But I also think that it's more than just, you know, saying a prayer or whatever it is, however, whatever tradition people's, you know, that, that it actually is an invitation into a way of life. And that Jesus' way of life, that he is the way, the truth and life, that means there's something salvific about not just claiming Jesus, but we have to actually accept the, the, the some of what it means to, to accept Jesus is to accept the way of Jesus. Like those two things are not separated from one another in, in what the New Testament is trying to describe. It always is simultaneously it, when it says, you know, to accept Jesus as Lord, it always assumes then that you are orienting your life as Jesus as Lord, that those two things are not one or the other. This is not, we don't take a, the, the New Testament is not considered in, it's not trying to prepare us to take a test for when we die so we can get all the right answers, right? It's trying to form us into a, uh, a new way of life so that we can be delivered from captivity, from the things that hold us. Um, so it's comprehensive in all areas of our lives. And so that includes, um, how we uh, 
relate to God, but how we relate to one another, to our world, to creation, and even as ourselves, right? And certainly it, it has a huge implications in terms of the way that we are captive to destructive systems um, and, and cycles of violence in our world. How can we break free from these things, right? That's some of what we're supposed to be saved from. In, in the biblical tradition, salvation is not just some spiritual thing and some afterlife thing. It's a here, right and now thing. You read Psalms 34, a uh, poor man in his need cries out to God and he delivered me, he says, right? Um, Zacchaeus in the New Testament, um, you know, he, he exploits people and and in response, after having his come to Jesus moment, <clears throat> promises he's going to redistribute his wealth to the poor, half of it to the poor. And four times back, he'll give reparations to those that he exploited. And then it says, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house, right? Um, it's about our entire way of life. All of us gets caught up in this, not just a part of us, not just our mind, not just our spirit, um, not that we've just rehearsed the right phrase that we prayed to God. Um, all of us are actually literally, truly saved um, from this, from the corruption and death-dealing ways that we see so often in this world. Some of our atheist friends of the show might look at what you're describing and going, yeah, like you, you've got to go back into hit. You, Drew, you've got to have a historical understanding and reinterpret this text now through this lens. And yeah, you can you can make this this text that's been used to oppress to like you like you were talking about yourself. This text used to suppress black people, to su suppress groups that were different, to like co-opt a, a, a dominant a domination narrative. People, atheist friends might think, Drew, like why bother? with Christianity it's you have to do all these things to make it jump all through all of these hoops why why bother with it at all so I would say I would actually say that what I'm doing with it is actually the is the not jumping through the hoops right is actually taking Jesus at his word and taking Jesus seriously it's actually the the folks that somehow turn this Jesus that emphasized and taught about the poor and oppressed and they do amazing mental gymnastics and theories and all systematics to fancy work, really. It's actually really quite clever, right, to make it into something else, that that's the, the hoops that are being jumped through. Um, so I would say it's the other way. And so I can only bear witness to what I understand, which is that my, my ancestors, um, you know, even in the midst of slavery, encountered not the God that was being preached uh, to endorse slavery, but even as they were, white people were trying to preach that to them, they encountered for themselves a delivering God, a liberating God, a God that was present with them and a co-sufferer and a friend in hard times. And, and that uh, encouraged, you know, Harriet Tubman to, to free others. That encouraged Ida B. Wells to fight against, um, you know, the lynching that was going on in our society. That encouraged uh, Fred, Fred Shuttlesworth and Martin Luther King and, and Ella Baker and all these others, right, um, to, to struggle for justice. It was an organic and outflowing of the faith that they had been taught. They didn't know otherwise, but in this encounter with Jesus, what else are we going to do, right? But to participate in the delivering and liberation of others um, and loving our neighbors as God has taught us to do. Um, and so that, I would say, is actually the, the more direct outflow of uh, authentic encounter with Jesus 
And it's actually quite impressive, the hoops that other folks have gone through. I mean, it's that's why there's such elaborate systematics, right, that people have gone through um, because they've got to make Jesus do something else other than what he's obviously doing. So to some of the humanist friends I've, I've had on the show, uh, speaking with Bart Campolo, he, he might say something like, Drew, you just you're just sounding like a humanist, mate. Like why like why don't you, like what's the benefit of this Jesus narrative? You've outlined some already that like the the driving force that that was for ancestors coming through the oppression. But but what do you say when when they go you sound like a humanist, you know, this religion seems to be heavily co-opted right now by you know, uh, like mainline americanism or or whatever we want to call it. You know, just ditch this and be a humanist. Um, and I would just say, you know, I can't ditch what gives me my inspiration, why I wake up and struggle, uh, what has encouraged me. Um, and, and so, and I, nor would I want to ditch the very thing that, that helped my ancestors survive and also seek and, and imagine a time when we could thrive. Right. Um, and so, and it's not even merely just what I do in the present, but it's also to catch a vision for what I would say is God's dream for all of creation, the thriving and flourishing of all people, um, that we can catch a vision for that and believe that God is up to something and God is doing something in the world and that I want to join in with that, right? Um, and so I love, I've got humanist friends as well. I love them. I collaborate. Um, and, and sometimes I think that they you know, they bear witness to the spirit of Christ more than many Christians do. Um, and I don't want to impose anything, any categories on others. But I, but I do think that um, that for folks, if they're justice loving folks, um, then I can collaborate with them. I can partner with them. Um, and that's even interreligious as well, that um, that there's space. And that's precisely what I think uh, healthy, robust understanding of God's dream does is it invites us to collaborate with our neighbors uh, for the good of all. When you teach anti-racism and anti-racism education where do you where do you do that and i suppose what are the i mean what is anti-racism as, as apart from like the obvious uh okay not racism but but i guess what is it and what is it that you teach yeah i mean so i'm not focused as much on individuals right but again i'm thinking about systems and structures institutions policies and even cultural myths and narratives and things like that that sustain the way that we organize our society um, so in the United States, um, you know, I'll use public education for an example, right? We've got um, massive inequality in terms of how state funds are distributed in Pennsylvania, just massive. And so the more white a school district, the more money they get per students, the more uh, people of color in a school district, the more underfunded they are, right? Um, so you've got these systems and structures and policies in place that are racist, um, and that we've got to actually challenge that to make sure that everyone has access so that everyone has all that they need so that everyone can fly and flourish. And so um, that's some of what I want to do is help them, number one, see, move from just thinking about bad racists and good people, right? Because that's the paradigm that most people operate of. We're either you're a good person or you're a racist. And so, you know, I'm not a KKK person, right? I don't, I'm not a neo-Nazi, so I'm a good person, right? And that's, it's a really unhelpful binary that we kind of think through it. And so instead, how do we begin to see how our society is organized in such ways that it harms some and, and advantages others? I think that's the first task. Then also to understand 
the very like structure and DNA of racial logics, the uh, racial hierarchy, right? The white supremacy, um, um, that to see white as everything good, right, and beautiful in the world, to see blackness as negative and bad and immoral innately, right? Um, that these are things that people will say overtly, but then you listen to how people talk. Um, oh, they're backwards and they this and that and their culture. Da, da. Um, they still, nonetheless, it's mutated in terms of how exactly people say it, but there's still an anti-blackness in racism that's deeply embedded in, in discourse um, today. And so all these things, I want us to expose that. And then also for me, the work that I do is to also have the church wrestle with the theological distortions and, and the church's role in creating some of this. Um, that this is not just, oh, the world. That's how the church likes, oh, the world out there. They And we go, oh, yeah, we were a little complicit in it. No, you weren't just a little complicit in it. You started it, right? The church has started it, especially Western Christians. And they need to confess that and repent of that um, and stop skirting responsibility. I think that that's the first task. And that's basic Christianity. When you when you wrong, you confess it, you repent, you make amends, and then you pursue shalom, well-being for all. As I hear that, I can I can hear how it's heard, and as I identify like how I think some uh, within white Christianity or mainline Protestantism, whatever we want to call it, how they might be hearing it. I think I think one of the key differentials, maybe, is the lens of indiv- of the individual. Like when, when we hear that critique and go, you're, you're actually going, well, I'm not in a class like, okay, everybody, I'm going to teach you three steps to not be racist. All right. Number one, don't kick people out of your shop. Number two, like you, you're not, but that's, that's, I guess where, the, where like my mind would go is like, okay, to the individual, we're teaching people. It's all because, and maybe that, that, that's an outflow of, of ultimately like consumer capitalism where, you know, the only power we have now within these societies. I mean, yeah, we can vote, uh, but really our, our problem is like if you look at our environmental problem and like all the plastic that's just been pumped out and no one cares where it's going to end up, it's like, yeah, but it's cheap. You go, well, Conrad, if, if you disagree with that, you stop buying it. And that's like the only power that I think I kind of have now as a consumer. It's like, oh, my, my market power and... Oh, my power only exists as the individual. But as you're critiquing these larger systems that I am either benefiting from, some, like inadvertently perpetuating, or just a victim of myself that I don't really have, have much power in, it's interesting to, to hear a collective critique that when received as the individual, we go into these two categories of good versus evil. So if you're critiquing a system or a church or a doctrine for... Um, being racist or oppressing people or being unfair, the natural default is, well, Drew, I'm not, I'm not racist, Drew. Like, I, I like, you know, I, I tip everybody the same. There's my American analogy for you. We don't tip here, but you know, like, I, Drew, I'm not racist. But essentially, what you're saying is there are systems that we need to work together to, I guess. Would you almost say like collectively repent being like if to repent is to turn from your ways as an individual, there's almost this collective repentance being like this system has been used to oppress. Can we repent from that and change the system so it so it benefits everybody equally? 
Yeah, I mean, Dr. King, he actually, in one of his later sermons, he says, America needs to be reborn, right? Um, but he's thinking about the systems, the structures, the society, the way that we organize ourselves, that it needs to be reborn, this complete transformation of our values. I mean, he even goes as far as to say that we need to undergo a radical revolution of values, moving from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society, right? And so he's imagining some really deep change that is both systems, values, and it does have implications for us as individuals. So it does have work that we've got to do, but it can't just be an individual response that will not solve our problems, right? And so, but I think one of the options that we do have, and this is my my newest book, Who Will Be a Witness, it invites us then to think about after thinking through all these other issues is um, what's our collective response, right? How can we organize? How can we respond and, and seek structural change? Um, because those are some of the things that are needed if we're going to actually protect those who are most vulnerable in our communities. How do you see the people who might push against what you're saying? Like a, a lot of people that might um, interpret it as like a condemnation on the individual and and perpetuate systems of oppression. How, I guess, how do you see those people? Um, I mean, I think there, I do think that there's just people's brains have been wired to think individualistically. So I recognize that, that people, it's like we're, sometimes we're having, we're using the same words and we're having two different conversations. I'm talking about racism as a system and they're thinking like, I'm saying they're a bad person individually. Now I am saying that we're all complicit in the system, right? So there is, so it does have something to do with us, but I'm not saying that they're neo-Nazis, right? That's what they're hearing. They're hearing, uh, you're calling me a neo-Nazi or a KKK member. And I'm saying, no, 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 but you are, but we are complicit if we're not resisting it, if we're not trying to seek to transform it. And so we all have to take responsibility. And so I do recognize that people are so wired. We're so hyper individualistic in terms of how we think. I think in the West in particular, and certainly in the United States, that I think that it becomes hard for people to hear um, and think about societal issues and social and systemic stuff and structural stuff. I mean, Granted, there are ways in which people do when they want to. So it can be a little selective. But nonetheless, I do think people are wired in, in such ways that it makes it challenging for people to fully see and think because that's not how they've been taught. They've been taught intentionally, I think, to think in hyper-individualistic ways, which then allows them to have no kind of communal responsibility, only individual responsibility. Um, and so I think that, that that's dangerous, though. And I think that, um, but I, 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 I don't think it's, it's a kind of ignorance, but I always call it willful ignorance. Like I think the communities have chosen to continue to perpetuate thinking in such ways. They think in such ways that allow their community to operate and live and thrive as it is. And it upholds the status quo to be committed to thinking in that kind of way. And so um, so it's it needs to be challenged. It, the bubble needs to be burst. So is there, would you say there is, because I guess there's two ways of looking at that. There's people growing up in a system thinking a certain way and therefore acting out of the system that's shaped them. But as you say, it's willful on in part. So some level they've chosen it. Do you think that on some level there's a moral culpability there? So the individual will go, oh, you're calling me a bad person. And that might not be your sole critique. But do you think if there's a choice there, then there's also that moral component and that moral culpability of people? Yeah. I mean, that's why. I, so me saying willful ignorance is to say there's some choice being made. There's enough information that they could have chose to listen more. Right. 
and they chose to persist in not knowing. Um, so I do think there's moral culpability. I think that at every stage in certainly United States history, there's been enough information and enough people crying out saying otherwise that they could have taken those voices seriously and instead tuned them out, right? Um, they could have had not just all white men on their bookshelf, but they could have included other voices and read from other people who were out and around. And instead they called everyone a Marxist, right? So like uh, th there's moral culpability, I think, for, for those kind of decisions that are made, even if they don't fully understand the issues where they are. How do you think those people see you as you I think, put these critiques out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that they think, I imagine, I think in the United States in particular, um, many folks who are very conservative think that anyone who's not conservative is a flaming liberal, right? Um, and that they've gone off the way and that they've drank the Kool-Aid and all that kind of stuff, right? That's and a dirty so, word though, yeah? Liberal. What? Liberal, yeah, yeah, and so that's um, a dirty word, yeah. Liberal, it's, it's yeah, a, it's dirty a dirty liberal. word. It's a dirty word. The bad liberals, and so, um, and so, w which is unfortunate that then there can't be actually much nuance between a whole variety of different positions, right? Um, like, I actually don't even use the word liberal at all. I don't even. People would be surprised that I don't choose to use the word progressive to describe myself. Um, I'd use the word radical, right? And I know that's a scary words. People are like, why would you want to use that? It's even worse. Um, but for me, I'm. Because I'm a follower of Jesus, like I'm a radical follower of Jesus, and I and I, it's radical is to take to go to the root of things, right? Which is what's the root of the Jesus story? Uh, for me, that's what I want to recover and take seriously. Um, and so, um, and I just it just so happens that Jesus also is a justice loving person who cares about the well being and flourishing of all people, especially those who are stigmatized and marginalized in society. And so, and so people. So me and many of my friends who would label themselves as progressive will find ourselves as, as you know, collaborators in many ways. But, but my agenda, in fact, I don't like the language progressive because I think that the framing of it um, actually borrows from colonialist logics that saw African people as backwards, right? It's this weird chronology in their minds that somehow different spaces are operating in a different time. They're backwards and we're forwards, right? And I think that pro pro progressive in unintentionally is still operating out of those logics um, um, in the language, at least, even if people are not saying that about people groups. Though I do think that, I'll be honest, that peers of mine will say that about conservatives, say that they're backwards, right? This is 2020. How can they still think like that? They're Why they're so backwards? And I think those are the same logics that were used against Black people, African people, Latin American people as savages from a different time period, right? Um, and so so I do think we have to be careful about our logics. And I know we're getting into a whole different point now, but, but, I, so, but when we don't have space to have differentiation between, you know, the different motivations for why people get to where they are, um, it just flattens everyone and there's no nuance and difference. And I think difference is a beautiful thing. And we got to actually, we should be actually be more curious about our differences, right? And actually hear people's stories. Um, and if we're not able to do that, um, we're going to lack the key ingredients to being fully human, sharing, having, entering into our shared humanity with others as well. Is there anything as we wrap up that you'd like to say or clarify or anything to, to finish up on? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I would, you know, maybe it's already come out. I love Jesus, right? So some people are a little embarrassed as Christians today. I'm a follower of Jesus that I love Jesus. I'm a deeply committed follower of Jesus. 
in the public square. That's how people know me when I'm organizing and working for justice. I do so as a follower of Jesus. I don't impose coercively my faith on others, but I also come fully as myself. And um, and I love that. And I love to also then have other folks come fully as themselves and to hear their stories. And I think that we need so much more of that. I think that unfortunately in the United States and in many places around the world, I'd say some of the ugliest forms of Christianity have the center stage um, and other forms that I think have been much more beautiful and much more transformative and liberative have often not gotten as much public attention and maybe because some of them have been too embarrassed by the way that some Christians have been in the public square. And so they kind of hide themselves. And I think that, um, that for folks that really love Jesus, we need some folks out there in the public square that actually live that out and, and make visible what this is really all about. Drew, thanks so much for taking so much time to to chat with us and just be open and honest and share your perspective. Where can people reach you and find your books and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, you can find me in a whole variety of ways. So first, my two books, my first book was called Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. It came out in 2016. And I have a new book that came out just a couple months ago. It's called Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. And you can find that um, pretty much anywhere books are sold. In fact, that one uh, has not only hardback and paperback and ebook, but now we actually have an audiobook for that as well. So I'm really excited about that. I've recorded it myself. And you can find um, I, I'm a podcaster. So me and Jared McKenna from Australia, right? We, we have a global podcast and we're really having a fun uh, community together. Uh, so Inverse Podcasts, you can find us. We talk about scripture, liberative readings of scripture together um, and just interview a whole bunch of really interesting folks from all over the world. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, D-R-U-H-A-R-T and Facebook and stuff like that as well. And so, yeah. Now, if you're listening to that and you and and you're agreeing a lot, that that's really good. But if you're disagreeing, that's that's also doesn't doesn't really matter because hopefully you've been able to move beyond. Do I agree? Do I disagree? Can you understand? Hopefully, I've been able to map some of how Drew comes to his conclusions, where he got to, how those conclusions work for him. Uh, that's that's really the point of the podcast. Now, if you've made it this long, it's like an hour and a half in. I mean, bloody well done. It's a, it's a long one to listen to, but it's now your duty to like rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and recommend it to a friend. Just you, you've made it this far. You must have enjoyed something. Give it to give it to just one friend. If you want to turn this podcast into a practice, then number one, listen to the episode that most repulses you. These are the ones that you're not interested in. You're like, ah, can't be bothered. That's the one you should probably listen to. Number two, write a question. What did I, what did I miss with, with esteemed guest, Dr. Drew? Uh, I missed probably a lot of questions. I'd love to hear what questions you wish I had have asked. And number three, send us a DM, send us an email, itisdigest at gmail.com. And until then, I will catch you in the next episode.